I'm Haley. And I'm Emma. And welcome to This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes play by play to prove that every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, Coriolanus. have to admit that so I was in Coriolanus right after we finished college and it was like my first professional theater thing and in some ways my last um (laughs) and even now as I start reading it I'm like I remember every word like I can just hear it in my head because it was like the kind of the first and only time I did like a you know a real like you know multi-month professional Mm -hmm. run of a show and it is just Mm -hmm. embedded in my brain though as you will see I can't remember it like off the top of my head it's just like when I revisit it I'm like oh this I can hear the actor saying that you know 10 years ago now but it's still just like the text is permanently that for me what a what a and and what a fun gay text to have permanently etched (laughs) onto your brain I know though now looking back I'm like we it was not that gay and I'm also like how how How? did we avoid that honestly this is one of those ones you know here we are welcome back to us and to everyone remember way back in the day when we were sort of hypothesizing which plays would be in the the actual truly gayest bracket by the end of this podcast and really early on we were like and Coriolanus I have, I've seen it a couple of times. I've never worked on it. I forgot that you had done that, but now it's coming back to me. I, I remember, so Oregon Shakespeare Festival did it in, I want to say 2008. And, um, and I saw it then and it was a really kind of intimate production in their smallest theater kind of in a in a deep thrust or in the round in a very kind of audience surround configuration and it was the only thing I remember is hit the fight with Aufidius that he eventually has and it was like my only memory of it in my unformed little young brain, even at the time, was like, gay, gay, gay. And I don't remember how hard they leaned into it, but my abiding kind of, the impression that it made was gay. That's good. Yeah, yeah. no, I don't I don't really remember getting that feeling from the production I was in. And certainly, mm. at least on the days I was there, that was not a topic of conversation, though. Mm. I was in the Roman ensemble, not the Volscian ensemble. So I wasn't there for the staging of the last scene and stuff. So mm. maybe it got a little more homoerotic on the Volscian days than on the Roman days. <laughs> that would track. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Coriolanus, already a front runner for gayest play. Um, when we eventually, I don't know what form this kind of bracket that we keep referring to is going to take, but we can um, do a listener poll. We can do a special episode where we pit them against each other. Yeah. Just to recap, I guess, since we're talking about it, I feel like in the front running so far is two noble kinsmen, probably two gentlemen Mm -hmm. of Verona, probably. Mm -hmm. And then maybe this by the end of this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think that's a. I think that's where we're up that's to where we are. this far. Yeah. I feel we've made other strong arguments, but those are the ones where it feels like fundamentally mm-hmm. there's just something really deeply gay. Inescapable. Although maybe the production you were in escaped it somehow. Well, I also saw a production of Tunable Kinsman that escaped it. So, you know, people are capable of so much. <laughs> so much harm. So much harm. So, much, gay, ho- so much homophobia is, is possible <laughs> when you really try. Or really Ain't don't try, truth. as the case yeah. may be. Um, yeah, but let's dive in to Coriolanus. Yeah. Um, it's 
the tale of a soldier named Caius Martius who is good at one thing and one thing only, and that's killing pagans or whatever they are. Um, In this case, the Volscians, uh, who at the beginning of the play, Rome is in a state of sort of civil unrest from which everybody's kind of fortunately distracted by a war against the Volscians. Coriolanus goes and fights them at great length. Um, surely one of the longest, like yeah. sustained battle sequences in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is great at his job, but deeply disdainful of non-soldiers and commoners. Um, so when he comes back to Rome and is sort of persuaded to stand for consul, uh, it goes badly and he offends <laughs> everyone and mm-hmm. ends up getting banished. Mm-hmm. And in his sort of rage against Rome, goes and joins the Volscians who are led by Aufidius, who's his like rival who he's obsessed with. Boyfriend. But then when they're sort of preparing to attack Rome, his mother and wife get sent to like plead to him to take mercy on the city and he agrees. And so Aufidius and the Volscians kill him. And that's the end of the play. And as you can tell... It is a late Shakespeare play because there are no dumb subplots. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, even just listening to it, even before you summarize it, it's a really small story, actually. Like, it's a really tight cast, which is why, Well, yes know, and no, there's sort of yeah. unnecessary huge ensemble, which is There is. Weird. There is. But the... The, um, the named characters The sort of... The sinews of the actual thematic plot are really, like, spare. Yeah, it's yeah. really kind of, like, lean. Yeah, but I think the unnamed citizens Hordes. play a huger yeah. role in this than in pretty yeah. much any other Shakespeare play I can think of. Like Julius Caesar, they mm-hmm. do a lot at the beginning, but then they go mm-hmm. away. Right. But like you couldn't cut them. You couldn't no, just be like, couldn't. oh, we'll have one sort of indicative citizen. Like you need this pack of people. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You do because of the because of the politics. And it's interesting because we were a little bit talking about this before we began (laughs) recording and I feel like it's worth mentioning at the top because every single every single thread of the plot so I saw this play more recently when uh, Shakespeare in the Park did it a couple years ago and great actor and friend of mine Jonathan Cake played Coriolanus and um, it was a production that I found really really frustrating Mm -hmm. and partly just because I hadn't it was like universally well received I did not like it and Mm. partly it was because of how, I mean, Coriolanus is a very interesting character, but his politics, such as they are, are really difficult for a contemporary audience if you're actually listening to them. Yeah, as I was reading it, I mean, we were going to talk about this later, but let's just talk about it now. As I was reading it, I was like, actually, I can't believe that nobody has done a like January 6th Capitol riots take on this. And I'm so glad they haven't because to make the citizens in this play, the capital rioters, which is what you'd want to do is yeah. wrong. And it would be really bad yeah. of what the politics are, even yeah. though I think that is absolutely the mm-hmm. sort of like fear and energy of like, what do you do when somebody is mad, you won't give them power. And so they kind of take violent revenge over it. But the person mm-hmm. who does that is Coriolanus. Is Coriolanus. That's the thing that's so interesting is that like the text, one of the there's a line later where an old senator who's scheming, who we're supposed to dislike, says, what is the city but the people? Yes. And that is like the oppositional view, whereas Coriolanus is basically like, no spoilers, everyone, but Coriolanus is basically like, go fuck yourselves. Why should the why should the citizens have grain? And it's like, my guy. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. So there's these characters and maybe we can turn this into like a sort of 
more detailed summary of act one mm. as we move into it is like so yeah. we begin sort of like with julius caesar right with a rebellion in this case that begins with like the festival of the looper call this begins with a food riot right. um because the people are starving and they claim that the patricians sort of have a store of grain they could give to the plebeians and won't um and we are introduced to all of our main cast, like Coriolanus and his friend Meninius and like a bunch of other kind of generals as all of them being like, like they're never like, oh, this isn't actually a problem. There's plenty of food. They're just like, right. but fuck them. We no, don't yeah, care. They, they're literally just like turn them away, do anything to keep them from the gates. Yeah, like, like we, they don't have the right to this food. No, they, yeah, that's literally like, and the thing is the, the populist kind of, uh anti you know like yeah well so the compromise that gets made is that they're like okay the people can have two like i actually i think they say five tribunes but we only meet two of them sicinius Uh and brutus and these become the sort of voice of the people in the senate for the rest of the play and these are the ones that you were alluding to a second ago the sort of opposition Mm -hmm. voice the what is the city but the people but the people which is also like that i think for most liberal theater going audience members like we're primed in our own politics and our own understanding of like social inequality to side with the people that coriolanus hates and disdains and so it's really hard in a play that is named after a dude very heavily centered on on one specific man and his journey and his kind of trials to understand his hatred and sort of snobbery yeah but at the same time it's like I think that if you could do it which I don't know that anyone could it's like there's a really you could really mount a critique of your upper class liberal audience because yes. the views that they espouse are also like oh but these people are just so uneducated like they just yeah. don't understand and like this frustration of like they don't know what they're talking about I wish they couldn't yeah. vote and it's like yeah can you frame it in a way where your audience sees themselves and the people making that critique in the liberal elite essentially yeah. like in the in the democratic elite of which Coriolanus is a member yeah. yeah no it's really it's really interesting and something else maybe as we actually move into act one and start talking about how fucking gay this play is something i might want to to knit these the the these things together remember a while ago when we were in the middle of the storm of the henry sixes and we were <laughs> asking the question do you remember that it was so long ago um we were younger then um do you remember how we were talking about is it gay to not want to be king ah And something I found myself thinking about in Coriolanus is like, is it a similar, like he's being asked to assume a position of authority and doesn't want it, doesn't want to like, is it like, is it worth though? He goes back and forth, but like under duress, like it's not the like Richard three thing where he's like, ask me three times. And then he, you know, and you know, I'll play the part, still answer nay and take it. It's like, he, is it gay to hate your, like, is, is it, I don't know. Is there something like, obviously he's not being asked to be king, but he is being asked to love his country, like to represent his country. Let's save this for act two and act three when that question actually comes up. Because act one is really long and it covers, like I said, this sort of riot. And then the riot is kind of cut short after the appointment of these two tribunes Mm -hmm. um, with the news that the Volscians are invading. And so so Coriolanus and his buddies have to kind of rush off to fight them. Mm -hmm. And then the Basically, the rest of Act One is 
the war. Mm-hmm. Um, Battle in Act One is such an unusual structure as well. Yeah. Like, um, you know? Yeah, it's just scene after scene of them at war. And I think that the kind of two things that get set up in this act that are really of interest to me are Coriolanus's relationship, for lack of a better word, with Ophidius. Yes. And the sort of general homosocial space of mm-hmm. warfare, which is, I feel mm-hmm. like, I mean, we were talking about before we began recording, I think mm-hmm. we kind of last time left on this note. Uh, and the reason that we kind of, I think, transitioned to this play mm-hmm. is this idea that has been like lightly present in some of the plays we've talked about already, especially like Henry the Fourth, even like Romeo and Juliet, mm-hmm. I think is going to be more strongly present in some plays we have yet to talk about, but is at its sort of pinnacle er form in this play, which is yeah. the sort of idea of the homosocial space of war and yeah. the tension between like, does being a soldier make you gay or is this just yeah. what happens when gay people become soldiers? Um, and so what we sort of set up in act one, I think is like, mm. this is Coriolanus's natural habitat. Yes. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of the way that Macbeth is introduced to the way that he's talked, the way that it's like, this is an amazing soldier. This is the one thing that he can do. Well, and it's like the conversation we had about, about Hotspur and the Douglas and Henry Four about the fact that like your truest relationship can be with your enemy because it's pure. Yeah. The Macbeth comparison is so interesting though, actually, because mm. basically Macbeth is like this play without act one. Yeah. So we get to really see Macbeth suck. I mean, not no. suck, but right. we get to see Coriolanus sort of, and to be clear, he's an asshole even in war. Oh yeah, he's he, the worst. He, he, he misses no chance to be classist and a dickhead, yeah. but he's really good at the thing he does. And we actually get to see that in this play, which now that you like mention it is like kind of unusual. Yes. Well, yeah, because all the plays that I, that we've covered so far anyway, that actually show these types of relationships in battle, they come very late and sort of climactically like Hal and Hotspur, you know, finally getting together in, in act five of Henry four one and like getting together in a stabby way, but a romantic stabby way. Whereas like, this is an ongoing thing. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it when I was rereading it yesterday. Ophidius is mentioned in act one, scene one. Yes, I have the lines right here. Give me two, go, you go. Yeah, so they go, they have a leader, Tullus Ophidius, that will put you toot. I sin in envying his nobility and were I anything but what I am, I would wish me only he. will t- return to that idea. Huge. Um, his friend, the general Cominius says, you have fought together. He says, we're half to half the world by the ears and he upon my party, I'd revolt to make only my wars with him. He is a lion that I am proud to hunt. Hot and weird. This is act one, scene one. And yeah. the thing is like, again, the way that we talked about Helen Hotspur with the kind of mutual obsession language all the way through the play where like all, all they do is talk about each other. This is that to such an extreme degree. <laughs> Yeah, but then they meet in Act One. Yeah, yeah, you get yeah, to yeah. see them fight in this battle, and then Ophidius mm-hmm. disappears for three acts. And does it come back again till Act Five, Act Four? I think but. Act Four, Act Four. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's interesting because um, in one, I think it's one two. You get the reverse of like it sort of jump cuts to the Vulcan side, and Ophidius is having a conversation about Coriolanus that is really similar, and he says to whoever, whichever soldier he's speaking to. If we and Caius Martius chance to meet, tis sworn between us, we shall ever strike till one can do no more. It literally starts with a neither can live while the other survives. Yeah. Um, but then they do meet. Then and they do meet. I mean, yes. maybe we could, we could just like trace this thread through. I mean, I also singled out the line. I mean, cause, so like, here's the thing that I feel like we have to, or at least like 
it's about, I think the thing that we get in this play that we get kind of a little bit in Henry the fourth, but again, we just get in like a much more sustained way is the yeah. fact that like, whenever you start talking about fighting with swords and spears, you are already making dick jokes, Yeah, not even jokes, but like, it is already so phallic. So we get this it's line. It's just penetrative. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. the man of my soul's hate, Aphidius piercing our Romans. And like, Ridiculous. you know, <laughs> it's so, it's just like erotic. It's so insane. Yeah. Um, but then it's like Coriolanus and Ophidius take it a step further than this sort of baseline. And we get lines like Coriolanus. And again, he's not actually named Coriolanus yet. He gets named Coriolanus because of this battle, but like. At, at Coriolis. At Coriolis. But we, you know, let's. Sure. We're not going to do that. Stay <laughs> consistent. We yeah. could call him Martius. Martius. Um, Marty. Marty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Horrible. Yeah, but so when he when he encounter when he does encounter Alphidius, he says, Oh, let me clip you in my arms as sound as when I wooed, in heart as merry as when our nuptial day was done and tapers burnt to bedward. Jesus Christ. So it's like on the one hand, everybody's engaged in phallic stuff, but on the other hand, though, they're gonna getting take married. It. They're getting yeah. This isn't yeah. just a one-time thing for them. No, it's not. Uh yeah, it's not. It's a hell of a lot. Um, yeah, there's just so many, yeah, there's so many weird, there's just so many weird face-off, square-off moments. And it's interesting, now I'm struck by the structural thing that you mentioned about the fact that, like, it's clearly a sustained mutual obsession relationship. They're taking it a step further, where everyone else is just having a soldierly one-night stand, they're getting married. But the thing that, the sort of edging that Shakespeare does by being like, you want a little of that in act one, you don't get it again until act four and then ooh baby, just wait. Like, you know what I mean? It's like the fact that it's such a big kind of high impact, the language is so intense, so clear. And then he takes him away. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, structurally. Another really structurally interesting thing is, so we get this like battlefield wedding. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then we also in this act meet Coriolanus's wife, yes, Virgilia, who, yes. to put it politely, and I think we'll talk about the women a little bit more in act two, like doesn't get it. <laughs> um, she does not. Like there's this whole scene where she's with Coriolanus's mom, Volumnia, who is a sort of battle mom. I don't know. Cough- like a- the what's stage a, mom. What's a sol- like literally exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. She's as, yeah, a soldier mom. A, a war stage mom, mom but a for war. war. Yeah. yeah. Um, she has these crazy lines where she's just like, Well, when I when he was a baby, I was like, he'd be cool as a soldier. And so I sent him to war as a baby. Yeah, yeah. And then also um. there's a really there's a really fucked up exchange later where they're talking about his son, Virgilia's, you know, their their yeah. child together, who is like wandering around the garden ripping the wings off butterflies and they're like oh my god how cute how like his father it's so messed up but there's this whole scene where sort of Virgilia is you know understandably upset because her husband's about to go off to war and Volumnia is like what is wrong with you like you don't understand him at all he like there's nothing to worry about either he comes back and did a great job or he dies and is glorious like which is amazing and Virgilia is just like I'm upset still I have a little piece of text from that since we're talking about it, because there's a moment where Virgilia says, but had he died in the business, madam, how then? And Volumnia says, then his good report should have been my son. 
I therein <laughs> would have found issue. Hear me profess sincerely, had I a dozen sons, each in my love alike, and none less dear than thine and my good Caius Martius, I had rather had 11 die boldly for their country than one voluptuously surfeit out of action. Which, like... Okay. <laughs> War Gosh. mom. Yeah. yeah. Then his good report should have been my son is so intense, though. And, like, I know we'll have more thoughts about Volumnia and Coriolanus later, but it is a strong beginning. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's a lot and I mean I'm like she's this is I mean we're kind of planting this like she's taking credit for the yeah. way he is yeah which is then interesting when we get this sort of like contrasted I mean because usually like in Henry the fourth part mm-hmm. one we have hot so we have the very kind of clear demarcation of like Hotspur and Mortimer have their wives and their wives are the things that distract them or would distract them from battle and to mm-hmm. go and fight you have to sort of reject your marriage and Hotspur mm-hmm. does that very easily and successfully and Mortimer kind of struggles um and mm-hmm. here it's like we have a sort of version of the setup of the same thing like he's got Virgilia who's at home who we don't see him interact with in this act at all who doesn't understand how this stuff works like doesn't kind of value his honor the way that he values it versus Aufidius who understands him and like literally can meet him in battle and like meet him where he's at, where he's at. yeah um mm-hmm. and but also we have Volumnia So it's like complicating the kind of gender split that you sort of instinctively want there to be. Yes. Well, because we are talking about it and kind of planting some Volumnia seeds that can kind of flower later. I think it's this question of like, I mean, not to bring it back to Macbeth again, but the conversation we had then about like, is there something about in her pushing of him and her making him the violent thing that he is is there something about it being an unnatural marriage because she's an unnatural woman and I feel like in this play the question is like is is Volumnia an unnatural mother and an unnatural woman for you know and I know it's Roman so obviously that's a slightly different but the thing is she's she's there's a weird not to get super like kind of post-freudian psychological about it but there there's a weird like the stage mom comparison is apt because her vicarious glory through him is such a strong thread of the play and so like yeah but at the same time I feel like it connects back to this sort of political problem we're facing as well where it's like for us we're like Volumnia fucked him up but I feel like yeah. the play is a little more okay yeah with what Volumnia has done I mean a little bit I do think we're meant to find her quite intense but yes. like ultimately she's very kind of as we'll see later on she's very also very kind of pragmatic and political and like good at what she does and in the end she kind of saves the day mm-hmm. at the cost of his life but like she does she saves Rome and I wonder if in blurring the gender split, it's emphasizing that for Coriolanus, it's a class split. Hmm. Like his mom is an aristocrat and therefore she can understand this Mm -hmm. stuff. Whereas like really it's about the conflict, Mm -hmm. but not between sort of like the quote unquote domestic realm and the martial realm, but about the upper classes and the lower classes. Hmm. Maybe, maybe. It's really interesting. I was also just thinking about like the the there are so many Shakespeare plays where one of the foundational relationships is a da- a single da- a single father and a daughter but I think this is the only one where it's a single mother and a son um all's well that ends well all's well of course yeah 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 <laughs> but and... it's like it it's it's uh 
it's a really interesting relationship because the sense of the gender split is really interesting. The sense of her, she's in a lot of scenes with other women. She's definitely sort of allied with femininity in a certain sense, but at the same time, she's so, he refers to her as his general. Other people Mm -hmm. do as well. You know what I mean? That there's such a, like, she's sort of both mother and father. Yeah, actually the other relationship I'd compare her to, I mean, both of them, both the, the Countess and Oswell and also yeah. Constance and King John. Constance, a lot of her yes. because there's a scene later where um, after Coriolanus has defected, people are like, oh, here comes Volumnia. She's totally mad. And then she enters and is very much not mad at all. They right. just don't want to listen to what she has to say, which is exactly what happens to Constance right. um, in King John and her son, Arthur and blah, 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 blah. Um, yeah. We'll get to that play eventually. We uh, will. It's great. But it um, great. <laughs> all three of these women, like despite unlike someone like Margaret, who I think Mm -hmm. as cool as she is, the play can't ever quite accept. They're really respected sort of by other characters, except for there's this kind of madness thing. But even then, like the characters who are disrespecting them by calling them mad, it's like, there's this really obvious disjunction between them Mm -hmm. being like, you're crazy. And them being like, I'm clearly not, I'm just upset. Um, Yeah. And so it's like the plays and the characters themselves really respect these like single moms. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're and the way, too, in which like they've elevated each other's status, like she's important because he's a hero, but she made him a hero. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like <laughs> I couldn't help but thinking of like the very 1950s, like your frigid, ambitious mother made you gay. Yes. Like- I mean, yes, that's the thing is we have to we have to just name that because I think it's kind of here. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the sense of like, well, as we joked before we started recording, the old the old like rebel without a cause thing of like, if my dad had only loved me a little bit more, maybe I wouldn't be gay. I mean, yeah. it's like, again, not not to go, not to go sort of post Freudian about it, but it's an odd relationship. It's a, it's an intense, I mean, he certainly cares a hell of a lot more about her than his wife. Yes. And in terms of when we speak about the domestic, like the actual ties, Volumnia, like, you know, Virgilia, so, as you said, politely doesn't get it. Like it's a different, um, what does he call her? My gracious, my gracious silence. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, come on now. Comes home from comes home from war, sees his wife. Yeah, the line is my gracious silence, hail. It's yeah, because when he gets back from Warnack 2, which it feels like we're transitioning into, yeah. um Volumnia greets him with this massive speech and Virgilia doesn't say anything. And then he's like, Hello. Hey, hey girl. <laughs> hey girl. But also she's been doing a lot of crying in his absence. And like you said, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's the fact that he, I don't remember where he calls Volumnia general. And I think someone else does too later, but like, you know, yeah. she, she is both the martial and the domestic in one body kind yeah. of. Yeah. And accepted and recognized as that by everybody. Like yeah. there's not this sort of tension of like, Again, because like even in like King John, what a comparison to be drawing. I'm sorry for leading us down this path. Um, but it's like people are suspicious of Constance's agenda in regards to her son, Arthur. And obviously a key difference there yeah. is that Arthur's a kid. And so there's a yeah. sense of like, he doesn't have his own will. The things he says and does are just Constance kind of puppeting him. And we don't right. get even that from no. Volumnia. It's very much like, yeah, like people are just like, you're mm-hmm. good at this. So mm. we respect you. Until Mm -hmm. there's this tension where she's saying things that some people don't want to hear. Right, right. So, I mean, yeah, let's move into act two. He comes home from war at the end of act one. Yes, and finally is named Yeah, 
and is named Coriolanus as a kind of like garland of victory because the city where he just kicked all of the Volscians' ass is Coriolis. Yes, um, and we sort of move, we begin to move into the politics in Act yes. 2 because he comes back and he is pressured again by his mom and by his friend Menenius to stand for consul. Um, and in order to do this, he has to kind of appeal to the people and basically go on like a handshake tour, go to the Iowa State Fair and kiss some babies, kiss some babies, and for some reason, symbolically display his war scars. That's like by, by disrobing in public. Yes, and let yeah. everybody see like this is what I've suffered for Rome, and therefore you should mm-hmm. vote for me. For the and he city, kind right. of <laughs> make, and this is where this is where like. I feel like there is a tension about whether he wants this or not. Cause like he mm-hmm. does not want to do the things. No. He does not want to like strip off in public. He does not want to have to go glad hand a bunch of Plebeians. But at the same time, like, and like he kind of pushes back initially against his mom and Meninius to be like, I don't even want to do this at all. But like he doesn't, once he starts. Yeah. It's like, and once people kind of start pushing back and being like, no, we're not going to vote for you. He's also mad about that. Yeah, he is. I mean, he's mad about he's such a complicated and annoying character. I love him so much. I'm I love but also wow, so annoying. I mean, (laughs) part of part of what he's reacting to, it's probably worth saying is that in a lot of the battle that we saw in Act One, um, there textually are a lot of citizens running. Yeah. in the in the other direction yes so we have this what, sort of class divide even in the combat where the, the and, officers stand by him and fight yes. and, the, and the one yes. assumes conscripted civilian soldiers yes. probably slaves run away. are running right and so part of what's happening with Coriolanus is that he hates cowardice mm-hmm. and he and you know there's a little piece of text here when they're trying to be when they're trying to pressure him to do what he needs to do and just you know and and Meninius is spending all of his time being like it's not a big deal just be nice for a second and he says what must I say I pray sir plague upon I cannot bring my tongue to such a pace sir look my wounds I got them in my country's service when some certain of your brethren roared and ran from the noise of our own drums yeah and that's kind of the tone of what he's saying and then it's really interesting because later, I don't have the quote right here, but he's mm-hmm. talking to some to some citizens um, and he's like, what do I have to do to get your vote? One of them literally says, like, just ask nicely. That's literally what they say. And yeah. then, and he's, then like, he's like, oh, well, is this no. nice enough? And yeah. it's like, yeah, so it's like he can't even do. I mean, and like this becomes then the kind of the conflict of act two and these like arguments he has with his mom and with Menenius, especially right. is like them just being like you just have to say the words. Right. You don't have to mean it even. Like you just have to be a politician. You just have to literally not insult them to their faces. Yeah, exactly. And that's what he won't do. And it's one of these funny things where the tension, especially like directorially, if I may say, the tension of like, does the play he gets he gets called prideful a lot his pride gets spoken about a lot and is it sort of like the play is trying to take the attitude that he's this like honest to a fault kind of you know like he can't say anything that doesn't feel true but also he's being an asshole you know and so it's this tension of like is the play how do you let that be true because the play says that it's true and yet also take in the fact that that what the play calls a virtue is not looked at as a virtue in the year of our Lord 2022 by the audience. So yeah. yeah. And the yeah. sort of the same 
problem you have in Julius Caesar exploded yeah. to a billion of yeah. Shakespeare's utter disdain for the fickleness of the crowd yes. and the fact that Shakespeare, or at least in the context of this play, kind of mm-hmm. implies states that fickleness means mm-hmm. they don't deserve rights like to live because that's really the thing that I find hard to swallow with Mm -hmm. Coriolanus is like he's so disdainful of the citizens who don't go to fight but it's sort of like yeah but isn't that why you went like isn't that who this is for is the people who don't and can't it's hard for me to square politically because this is also the Shakespeare that, you know, wrote Falstaff's amazing speech about why war is bullshit. And, you know, I mean, like, yeah, so, you know, the anonymous soldiers, food for powder, food for powder. It's like, how do we, how is that? Like, th- that's Shakespeare as we know him. And yet here, this is from act three, but it's relevant to this. Uh, Coriolanus has this little has a part of a speech where he's speaking about the people. He says, for the mutable rank scented many, let them regard me as I do not flatter and therein behold themselves. I say again, in soothing them, we nourish against our Senate, the cockle of rebellion, insolence, sedition, which we ourselves have plowed for, sowed and scattered by mingling them with us, the honored number. Mm-hmm. Okay, how and how can we hear that? Yeah, I mean, it feels really Jacobean to me. Like King James had this sort of hatred and terror of any semblance of like the will of the people and really Mm -hmm. set ideas about what tyranny means and the rights or lack thereof that people had to push back against perceived tyranny. And that was a sort of preoccupation of his. Mm -hmm. And this is a sort of Jacobean play. Yeah, Um, I wondered about that. So like there's a connection there of sort of, it feels maybe like Shakespeare kind of following the political tides Mm -hmm. in a way and Mm -hmm. knowing like this is a perspective that his company's patron would respond to. Which is it's not really to like sort of exculpate him and say that maybe he didn't believe this, but like. But there is a context and, but it's just interesting because it feels in a way, and this is what I found most difficult to, to parse looking at the play a few years ago when I was looking at it in the park where I was just like, how is this? You, you struggle to make someone the emotional center who is, well, it's also like, if the play thinks of his pride as a virtue or his, you know, his honesty as a virtue and also his prowess in killing a virtue, those, that's what he's got. And also he's extremely gay. But like, if, if what he has are those things, looking at it with our eyes now, you know, hatred of the lower classes, not great. Also like your, your, your. A sense of entitlement. entitlement. Yeah. And also just like, okay, well, if we can't get down with that, the thing he's got is he's an amazing soldier, but can we even get down with that? Yeah. I mean, I'd say we can't. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's intense, you know, like. Yeah. But, and I think that um, to bring the question of then, I think that that maybe is actually why you don't see a lot of, we haven't seen a lot of productions of this that lean into the very, very clear gay subtext here because yes. the tension that also then is being set up is like there's this homosocial slash homosexual world of war where he is yep. comfortable and at peace and yep. one wants to have empathy for the alienation that he feels when he is kind of forced 
to interact with women and forced to kind of yes. exist in a world where you can't bond with men in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something in that for him, every interaction feels false. Yeah. You know, he's like, these aren't real connections. These aren't real words. Yeah. Um, but it's really hard to build empathy for that in this context. It is. And it's also, I think, maybe just a baseline reluctance that I'm interested in what you said earlier about how you could maybe frame it as a sort of as a sneak attack read of the audience as (laughs) as the people who, you know, we think we're supposed to dislike of like the I think that we're we would be reluctant to place it would feel like dissonance to us to place all of these problematic and sort of conservative feeling politics inside the kind of heart of this really conflicted gay action hero. Yeah, I mean that would be like so interesting. It though. would be really interesting if you let them really if you, good. <laughs> if you really let them both be true. If yeah. like, yeah, he's a dick, he's insufferable. He has a lot of to our ears really sour political thoughts. At the same time, he is that way and thinks that way and feels that way because of this, this, and this. And also, like next to that, he definitely is gay. And also, like all of the text that feels erotic is erotic. Let it yeah. be as erotic as it is. It's and like the two things at once. And like an element of his alienation is this. It's not an excuse for it. It's not the only thing. Because this is the thing that drives me crazy as well is when you get productions, a little bit of something like Richard II, and especially Mm -hmm. when you get productions of Marlowe's Edward II is in wanting to make Richard and Edward gay, productions try to pretend that they're not also terrible kings. Terrible people, yeah. And terrible people. And it's like, no, no, it's both. Like he, yes, yes, you can kind of try and make like it's it, Edward is not deposed because he's gay he's deposed because he's a shit king yeah yeah an annoying person yeah 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 and I and mean similarly it's like, as well yeah yeah and similarly it's like I don't think you can there's no way to frame act two and also act three which maybe we can start moving into as yeah they don't like Coriolanus because he's gay. It's like, no, they don't like Coriolanus because he's a massive dick to I think I think that would be easy to convey in production. Maybe what we're going to find ourselves arguing for is one where you just really go hard for both. And in parallel, not to excuse one another, but just in parallel. Yeah. You know? Uh, I mean... just like this really bitchy gay. Yeah, he's the word. He's extremely bitchy. But like, it is what it is, you know? I mean, like, that's really interesting. I want to keep my eyes on it. I mean, I want to say one thing about Act 2 before we leave it, which is just a small scent, a small grace note thought that I had about like, it's not a, we, you know, what he's being asked to do, take his clothes off and show his body to the citizens and talk about the holes in it. Uh, you know, that's not like a neutral thing. And it's, I had the thought about, is there a, is there a reluctance? Like, is it about not wanting the the people to, to own his body to, is it about wanting to remain a person unto himself and not become a symbol? Is it about like, and I just wanted to kind of speak it because it's something I thought about a lot because like, it is a sort of a strange fetishizing and a kind of like a, a, what he's being asked to do is like present his body as a sort of, as a, as a sort of object 
and tell the story of it and also the story of what other men did to it because it's you know I mean it's an interesting thing it's charged in a lot of ways it is and when you frame it like that it makes me realize that that's exactly what Othello was happy to do for Desdemona yeah tell the story of his scars yeah yeah. and you you mentioned this idea to me before we started recording and I didn't quite get it then but now that we've been talking I wonder if it connects to the same idea that it's like for him Mm -hmm. these are not authentic relationships like that's an intimacy Mm -hmm. that he can't Mm -hmm. give outside of the contact like he's he'll give himself to Mm -hmm. Alphidius he'll Mm -hmm. give himself to Cominius and Titus Lartius the other Mm -hmm. main soldier and Menenius and even his mom Mm-hmm. Um, but like he can't mm-hmm. give that to just to to the straight people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ownership over his body and therefore the story. And his wife doesn't want it. And his wife doesn't want it. She and does, his, his wife, wife doesn't understand. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. She doesn't want to see or hear about his scars. And she's notably yeah. not present during any of these debates about no. what he should do and what he should become. Right. And so it is interesting that like, even, you know, we can definitely leave act two behind, but just the fact that the big sticking point is that he doesn't want to get naked in front of the citizens who he famously disrespects. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing to kind of have in our heads. It's an interesting thing for a male hero to be asked to do to sort of self fetishize in a strange way. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and yeah, coming away from the erotics of act one. Mm-hmm where we get so many descriptions of his scars and his body covered in blood. And like, they're always talking about like, I want you to bathe. I want to wash you and soothe you and care for your body. And he just keeps on fighting. It's like, yeah, something about who he feels willing and able to kind of be physically intimate with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you reminded me of something that I didn't quote earlier, but I'll briefly quote now, which is something Ophidius says about him in Act One, where he's, I think, speaking to a different soldier, and he says about Coriolanus, he says, where I find him, were it at home, upon my brother's guard, even there against the hospitable cannon, would I wash my fierce hand in his heart. Yeah. You know, stick it right in. It's a lot, you guys. But yeah, so, you know, the body is a really charged object. And it's interesting that it's a male body that's a really charged object in this play. And also Mm -hmm. like the subject of debate for like an act and a half. Yeah, yeah. We talk about this for a long time. I mean, it's so interesting because it's like it is a long play and yet there's no subplot. We are focused on Coriolanus the whole time. The whole time. So yeah, I'm down. We can definitely move into act three because- you know, shit's getting weird in a, you know, shit continues to be weird. Yeah. I mean, and this is where we sort of get this, I've lost track a little bit of the, this is mm-hmm. not a play that divides neatly into five acts no. for me, which I haven't, I didn't do the research because it's very hot and I haven't been well. Um, so sorry. <laughs> um, and I have a dog now. Um, so these things combined to make me do very little work. Uh, okay. but, um, uh, it doesn't divide neatly into five acts for me, which says to me, I don't feel that it was performed indoors. And it doesn't oh, feel like an indoor play. It feels no, too it big for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. And yeah, two so, and three blur a lot for me. Acts yeah. Two and three particularly. And the split between four and five also just comes at a place yeah. where you're sort of like, sure. Why? Yeah. Okay. No, yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. No, that, one that, is its own thing. Two and three are its own thing. And then four and five, I feel like it's sort yeah, of it's more sort of, of a, like a three act three play. Act structure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's neither here nor there. It was just something yeah. I found interesting, but it's also why we're struggling to keep track of what happens in each act. Yeah. In which order. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point between act two and act three, there's this kind of, he manages to sort of resentfully speak to the citizens and get yeah. their votes without having to kind of bear his body. Right. And then these two tribunes of the people, Sicilius and Brutus, 
kind of gathered the people together and are like, how do you think that went? And there's this kind of mix of like, "Mm, I kind of regret saying I'd vote for him. He was a dick. And some people being like, oh, we like him. And basically, Cincinnati and British are like, it's not too late. You can absolutely change your minds. And in fact, you should. Mm -hmm. And so the people do. Take it back. Yeah. And then that kind of triggers a whole nother round of debate amongst Coriolanus and his friends about like, okay, how do we manage this? And how do we deal with this? And he's just getting angry and angrier mm-hmm. at kind of what he's being asked to do. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. There's a moment where a random patrician says, this man has marred his fortune. And the way that Menenius Agrippa kind of like spins what just happened mm-hmm. is he says, he says, his nature is too noble for the world. He would not flatter Neptune for his trident or Jove for powers to thunder. His heart's his mouth and what his breast forges that his tongue must vent. But it's like, dude, again, that's not a good thing. No. And it's also like, A, you're an adult. B, then don't do this. Don't do it. Then just drop out and don't run for consul because if you can't do the thing you have to do. Well, it's interesting because, well, yeah, I mean, there's a big scene with his mother in this act, which I think we can kind of just get to. Yeah. Because the tension of like, it's his mother who in previous acts primarily is the one who's like, I have these ambitions for you as well. You're a hero. Now you can also be in the Senate. And I feel like there is a strong sense in the back and forth that like he does try to do it for her primarily. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like that's fair to say, but then he ruins it by being an asshole and, or as Agrippa, as, as Meninius says, his heart's his mouth, but um, sure. (laughs) He tries, but not that hard. He tries, but not that hard, but you know, yeah, there's the whole not wanting to get naked in front of the citizens thing, whatever. He doesn't want to do it. He makes a big mess of it. He comes home and has this big kind of confrontational scene with his mother who is pissed that it hasn't gone well. And when she comes into the room, he says, why did you wish me milder? Would you have me false to my nature? Rather say I play the man I am. And she says, oh, sir, 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 I would have had you put your power well on before you'd worn it out. And he says, let go. And she says, you might have been enough the man you are with striving less to be so. And then she has a big speech where she reads him for absolute filth. But it's just like, you know, it's that's a really interesting thing. Would you rather say I play the man I am? Yeah, well, it reminds me again of the thing that he said about Ophidius in act one he's like if I could be anything but what I am I would be Ophidius that's right which is not very different from himself like that's a very mild change Mm -hmm. um but it's it's just an interesting again like Mm -hmm. we're getting this contrast between the the settings where he's willing to you know appear half naked and bloodied and speak kindly and respectfully of people Mm -hmm. and imagine himself to be someone else Mm -hmm. and the settings where that concept is anathema to him Yeah. You know, there's a lot of repeated language in this scene about acting a part, about being being asked to act a part versus, I mean, in the language of this podcast that we've established so far, the thing, the difference between seeming and being. Yeah. You know, if you will, (laughs) if you will. Yeah. He says to his mother and also Cominius is here at this point and probably Menenius. He says, uh, you have put me now to such a part, which never I shall discharge to the life. Like, yeah. that's the thing is like, I'm not going to be able to do it well. It's not who I am. And Cominius says, come, come, we'll prompt you. Like using actual theater language of like, we'll mm-hmm. help. And then Volumnia says, I pray thee now, sweet son, as thou hast said, my praise is made thee first a soldier. So to have my praise for this, 
perform a part thou hast not done before. Yeah. It's interesting. Like there is like in this act, I do like, and this scene specifically, it's like, I do Mm -hmm. feel a tiny amount of empathy for him in the sense of like, he's got the thing he's good at. Just let him do that thing. And like, he's he's a people person. Yeah. Like, and you know, he's an asshole while he does it and he hates the people and all this stuff. And it's like, yeah, there is something in just like a version of this play. We do this sometimes. Let's do it. Um, that I, when I was in it, um, thought about was, Mm -hmm. would you have more empathy for Coriolanus if he was played by and as a woman? And there was this sense of like, you know, why can't you smile more and be nicer Um, to sort of, and I guess maybe there's a way Mm. to use his like queerness to achieve a similar effect. But again, it's like, I worry that both versions of that sort of raise the fact that it's like, but also he sucks. Yeah, <laughs> I think a dickhead and I, hates I, the yeah. people. This is the thing. It's he hates them. He has no respect. And this is literally like, sorry, I just have to like say, but it's like in Sicinius and Brutus's scene where they're telling yeah. the people to like turn against him. They're like, he's never shown you any respect. He told you all to go starve yep. and he would be happy to let the Volsians come and murder you all. And it's yep. like, all those things are true yeah that's the thing and this is not julius caesar where it's this sort of manipulation and things that people did and didn't maybe say this is like no we saw that happen i know that's what's so interesting about it i mean now i'm really ambitious for the production that lets you have it all he's both he's both an asshole and also a complicated gay man but like those things as we know well can cohabit and there's and, many many horrible conservative things out there often do but yeah <laughs> i mean his his situation is both is both personally complex and worthy of empathy and also um like totally revolting to our political sensibilities i think yeah it like a totally both. um a problem of his own making that he could easily yeah fix by just not doing this yeah, but it's interesting because in the back and forth here in Act Three, it's interesting because after his mother is like prompting and prompting and is like, you know, perform a part that has not done before, he says, "Well, I must do it away my disposition and possess me some harlot's spirit." And we're all the way back to like sort of Hamlety language about seeming being a horse trick. Yes. And you know, that's the thing is like he is also definitely a misogynist because he doesn't care about women who aren't <laughs> his mother at all. But like, there's more. It's it's. That's a real fear, though, that I think you can also locate in this reticence to show the people his body and the thing of like, I don't want to be a whore for you. I want to do my own thing. Like he says in that same speech later, he says, I will not do it lest I cease to honor mine own truth and by my body's action, teach my mind the most inherent baseness. It's almost like there's something in the kind of intimacy of war has him fearing that potential for intimacy with any man like it's the idea that Mm. it's like I know very well once you kind of get up close with somebody and bury your body like how close and how intimate it can get and it's like I need to sort of I mean I don't mean to sort of be implying Mm -hmm. this like you know it's a gay guy he'll have sex with anyone but it's like almost this fear of like I I I know I don't I I, I, Like I have experienced being in this homosocial space where you sort of get up close and are sort of opened yourself to other people. And it's sort of like, I can't do that to just, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it if it's not real. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm not, again, it's like, it's, yeah, this fear of like, I'll be like whoring myself. I know that there's more to this intimacy and this truth than just shaking hands and pretending. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's actually really interesting. And that line of his about, you know, I, I don't want my body to accidentally teach my mind a baseness, like the thing mm-hmm. of like, I'm not going to fake it unless it happened to me for, yeah. real, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a really interesting thing. There's also something in, in act three, a little bit later, one of the tribune dudes, I forget which one who's stirring the people against him. Probably has Brutus. Tr- he has more lines. Her- probably Brutus. Yeah, he has he he has a turn of phrase that I wonder what you think about that I found really interesting. He says uh, when they're talking about like how to get him angry, because if he's angry, he'll fuck it all up for himself. And that'll be great for them. He says, put him to collar straight. He hath been used ever to conquer and to have his worth of contradiction being once chafed. He cannot be reined again to temperance. Then he speaks what's in his heart. And that is there which looks with us to break his neck. Yeah. What? I mean, he had been used ever to conquer is really interesting, but mm-hmm. also the thing of what's in his heart and that is there, which looks with us to break his neck. This idea that like, there's actually something in him that's also trying to destroy him. Yeah. I mean, and I think what they mean is his, his genuine hatred of yeah. the people. Yeah. And that's then what happens in this act is they kind of get him in a public space where he's supposed to apologize and yeah. try again. And instead they provoke him into giving this incredible speech um, about how much he hates the people and he gets yep. banished. Um, or no, it's rather they kind of interrupt him before they can say anything and banish him. And then he gets furious and gives this, right. you, know, you, cry, you common cry of curs. Um, uh, and, and it's the incredible line. There is a world elsewhere. Yes. Um, yes. I was going to say, you could just read the whole thing, but cause it's not very long, but the end, he says some nasty things about them of yeah. the kind that you might imagine. But yeah, the very end is he says, uh, despising for you, the city, thus I turn my back. There is a world elsewhere. And then he leaves, which is an incredible exit. It is. I mean, and again, it's like politically interesting to me because I feel like the thing you're supposed to do is love the city no matter what. And -hmm. I feel like this is maybe his kind of, I think this is where we're allowed to lose him a bit structurally is the idea that it's like, it shouldn't matter. You should love and stand by Rome anyway. You know, you should go be banished, but still loyal. And what he does is go be banished and immediately goes to find Aufidius. Yeah, well, here's the thing. I think this is the perfect point. Maybe there's something really obvious in this that we haven't quite talked about yet, which is that for a lot of the war as homosocial space that exists in other plays, like patriotism genuinely is not a factor for Coriolanus like it's genuinely not about that it's actually like what the play has been demonstrating relentlessly for the first three acts is that he doesn't care about the city because what is the city but the people and he hates the people he cares about getting about fucking getting naked and wrestling other men that's so perfect that's so good and I'm so glad you articulated that because I feel like yeah we were swirling on it but it needed to be said right yes it's not patriotism it's gay sex and that's why he's a bad politician because he doesn't like this party doesn't give a shit he doesn't care it's just about what he gets to do and be with other men it doesn't have to do with Rome yeah and this is when he demonstrates that by saying again I mean (laughs) the the, this is there is a world elsewhere kind of makes me think of you know I mean these are interesting examples because they're you know romantic but it's like Romeo's banishment there is no world without Verona walls oh that's great um that's you know great. and there's a lot there's a similar line I think in King Lear that's not coming to my mind right now mm. um but it's you know this idea that it's like that's how he should be thinking it's like there's no there's nowhere but Rome 
Yes, yes. And that's interesting because what you just reminded me of, there's a piece of text in Act 3 that I forgot to mention, but in one of the weird moments where he's in one of the moments where he's not going back and forth about this whole, how do I become a senator thing? Um, he's having a brief tete-a-tete with Titus Larchus, a homie of his, about Aufidius. And in the beginning of Act 3, he asks where he lives. Hmm. And, <laughs> and then at address? the address. Yeah, well, and it's it is one of those really modern feeling moments as well, where it kind of cuts to him and Titus Larchus having this conversation. And he says, saw you Aufidius. And uh, Larsha says, on safeguard, he came to me and did curse against the Volshies for they had so vilely yielded the town. He's retired to Antium. And Coriolanus says, spoke he of me? <laughs> and then Larsha says, he did, my lord. And Coriolanus goes, how? What? And then Larsha says, how often he had met you, sword to sword, that of all things upon the earth, he hated your person most, that he would pawn his fortunes to hopeless restitution so he might be called your vanquisher. So it's so interesting that like at the end of this act, when, when he's like, there is a world elsewhere, he's like, and I know exactly where I'm going, the town of Antium, let's <laughs> yes. go. Pin dropped on yeah. the map. And then what's so interesting, and I think we can move into act four. Yeah. Alphidius doesn't recognize him. It's so, it's so intense. <laughs> He, and I can't, I mean, I think you could kind of play it if you wanted to without Phidias kind of playing a game with him because he's sort of yeah. in this tavern. He's in disguise. He's had mm-hmm. all this language about like, oh my God, if these people know who I am, they're going to kill me. Like I can't reveal myself. And so Alphidius is forcing him to kind of announce his identity in public by not yeah. recognizing him. But like, I don't think it's written to be coy. I think Alphidius no. genuinely doesn't recognize him. Listen, we've said it before and we'll say it again. Everyone in Shakespeare is face blind. I know. He's usually, he's used to him being covered in blood and Mm -hmm. now he's not. And now he's clean, but he's wearing a weird scarf. Yeah. So he's um, unrecognized, but he takes off the scarf and Alphidius still doesn't recognize him. So he finally does have to say his name out loud. Um, And Alphidius, contrary, I mean, he has this great speech where he's sort of like, if you want to kill me, that's okay. And Alphidius is like, the opposite of that buddy mate the fact that you came here and I think we probably both pulled we I I pulled both of them because it's critical so I think we should I think we should read them both we're here for one reason and one reason only yeah 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 go for it okay well also Coriolanus is it's basically an indecent proposal that Coriolanus gives him yeah and which it should which one do you want to read both Uh, yeah just go for it you start well yeah let's do them sequentially so you start out Coriolanus says Uh, a bunch of shit this is just the second half but he says then if thou hast a heart of reek in thee that wilt revenge thine own particular wrongs and stop those names of shame seen through thy country speed thee straight and make my misery serve thy turn so use it that my revengeful services may prove as benefits to thee for i will fight against my cankered country with the spleen of all the under fiends but if so be thou darest not this and that to prove more fortunes thou art tired Then in a word, I also am longer to live most weary and present my throat to thee and to thy ancient malice, which not to cut would show thee but a fool, since I have ever followed thee with hate, drawn tons of blood out of thy country's breast and cannot live but to thy shame, unless it be to do thee service. Yeah. What? (laughs) And then Aphidius says some crazy shit. Yes. I mean, go for it. 
very well. Um, once again, I didn't pull the whole thing. I have, I didn't. Um, I have from Let Me Twine My Arms. I have the same, yes. so I can yes, do it. Course. Yeah. So basically, Please. he's like, Give that sounds. Us. He's like, not that. The opposite of that. He says, Let me twine my arms about that body, where against my grained ash and hundred times hath broke and scarred the moon with splinters. And my edition adds the editorial direction they embrace, but. Here I clip the anvil of my sword and do contest as hotly and as nobly with thy love as ever in ambitious strength I did contend against thy valor. Know thou first, I loved the maid I married, never man sighed truer breath. But that I see thee here, thou noble thing, more dances my rapt heart than when I first my wedded mistress saw bestride my threshold. Why, thou Mars, I tell thee, we have a power on foot and I had purpose once more to hew thy target from thy brawn or lose mine arm for it. Thou hast beat me out twelve several times, and I have nightly since dreamt of encounters twixt thyself and me. We have been down together in my sleep, unbuckling helms, fisting each other's throat, and waked half dead with nothing. Goodbye! <laughs> and I retire. Good night. Good night and good luck, everyone. Goodbye. I mean, sorry. Let's just stop the car. Stop. Stop. Roll it back. <laughs> we have been down together in my sleep, unbuckling helms, fisting each other's throats, and waked half dead with nothing. What? And also, I love my wife, but... Not as much as you. Yeah. I, well, I love my wife, and but also... Yeah, what is it? Uh, but that I see thee here, more dances my rapt heart than when my, I first my wedded mistress... Saw bestride my threshold. I literally am more aroused right now in this moment than I was when I saw my wife on our wedding night. And this is the second seeing your wife on your wedding night, like comparison that they've mutually drawn. And it's like, it's one thing to be like, you know, you can draw comparisons with your wife, but you're sure making a point of drawing comparisons to the first time you had sex with your wife. Also, like, I do contest as hotly and as nobly with thy love as ever in ambitious strength. I did contend against thy valor. Like, okay, boy, Jesus. It's, it's so much. Um, It's the most. And I mean, again, it's just like, it's like, okay, there's a sort of inherent eroticism to the language of war. The thing about like, we've met with our swords and you're like, you know, (laughs) but (laughs) <laughs> that has to beat me out. That made me laugh. Please, um, please. like it's just like it. It just feels like he's taking pains to pack the most erotic possible descriptions of these things. And I mean, I have nightly since dreamt of encounters twixt thyself and me is pretty unequivocal, you guys. Yeah. Well, and I mean, again, there's just something that's so erotic about like we waked half dead with nothing. The idea Fuck. of like the the you know the orgasm is death and like yeah. Yeah. um and also nothing dual- orgasm of masturbation like right exactly and the like I'm also dreaming about the sex that we're having and then I wake up and you're not there like yeah. the sort of bereft you know yeah. It's, in- yeah it's a lot I had a wet dream about you but it wasn't as good yeah. um <laughs> hey buddy yeah it's <laughs> so intense and it's like again it's just the fulfillment of like the thing that's been established from the beginning which is just that it's like for there's no kind of purer metaphor for the meaning of war for Coriolanus than the idea that he can relate more closely and intimately to his enemy than he can to a civilian. And again, yeah. we like get a version of this with Hotspur because yeah. he does kind of have this with the Douglas and yeah. then he and Hal kind of do have this like communion, but it's like right before he dies and it's don't really like each other, but this is like, no, they, I mean, it's exactly the thing that he said at the beginning. It's like, if I had to, I would switch sides in order would- to keep fighting 
Ophidius, yeah. but it's sort of the opposite of that. It's like, he's the only person I can like experience feelings for. And so yeah. I have to kind of go to him yeah. and be with him. And that's the thing that matters. It's exactly what you said. It's not about Rome. It's not about his people. It's not mm. about protecting the city. It's about getting to be with Ophidius. Being I hot guess. for this guy. Yeah. yeah. It's intense. It's intense. And, and it, this is one of those scenes where it's like, you know, the way we talked about the armoring scene in Two Noble Kinsmen, I, that, that play is gay in a lot of other, in a lot of other quarters as well. And of course, so is this one, but it's like, it, I, I would throw it down right now and say that I think it would be worth wading through the kind of like problematic gay political territory of the whole beginning of this play to get to this and do it properly. I was going to ask director Emma, would you have them kiss? Jesus. Well, they're also in a public, yes. in a very public space. They're surrounded by dudes. Well, this is interesting because there's a couple of other, so there's some text that I had never noticed before, probably because it is usually cut with a bunch of gossipy servants at the end of this scene. Yeah. Who are left on stage after it's this. It's like our one, it's like the clown in Othello where Shakespeare's like, fuck, I have to give some bits for the clowns. <laughs> but like the gossipy, foreign. the gossipy guys servants. guys haven't lines yet. Yeah, the gossipy servants just stay on, stay on stage and talk about what just happened. And uh, one of them says, speaking of Coriolanus, he says, why he is so made on here within as if he were son and heir to Mars, set at the upper end of the table, no question asked him by any of the senators, but they stand bald before him. Our general himself makes a mistress of him, sanctifies himself with his hand and turns up the white of the eye to his discourse. But the bottom of the news is that our general is cut in the middle and but one half of what he was yesterday. Okay. So they're married. So they're married. And also, yes, I think you could have them kiss in the scene. Yeah. I mean, because clearly whatever they're doing isn't secret. Nope. So that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could because people are talking about it. Yeah. That's a great yeah. point. What a great, yeah. what a great way of thinking that through. Um, Sorry, that's yeah. yeah. Um, no, there's also, wait, there's another thing. There's another yeah. weird, I'm going to find it. No, I'm going to find it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, oh, at the very end of this scene, before the gossipy servants come out, Ophidius and his kind of like goodbye as he and Coriolanus go in together, you know, as, you by, yeah. as they do, as they leave, Ophidius has some text too that I felt like was really, he says, ba, 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 therefore, most absolute sir, if thou wilt have the leading of thine own revenges, take the one half of my commission and set down as thou as best thou art experienced, since thou knowest thy country's strength and weaknesses thine own ways, whether to knock against the gates of Rome or rudely visit them in parts remote to fight them or destroy, but come in. Let me commend thee first to those that shall say yea to thy desires, a thousand welcomes and more a friend than e'er an enemy. And that's like the, the way that they leave the stage before yeah. these... You know, yeah, it's not subtle. It's not. But so when we move into act five, though, we get sort of trouble in paradise and we learn <laughs> we get the kind of parallel scenes of like Ophidius kind of regretting this bargain a little bit and being like, hmm, Coriolanus is an asshole and is making me look bad, actually. And also the people of Rome freaking out because the best soldier ever is coming to kill them all. And everybody. The other best soldier ever, his other, new husband. Yeah, like this power couple. <laughs> yeah. And they're all, you know, really usefully just blaming Sicinius and Brutus. Menetius <laughs> will not let that go. And they're like, what Amazing. were we supposed to do? He sucked. Um, mm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's the part that gets very like capital riots to me. It's like, oh my God, yeah. they're fighting. We should have let them have it. It's like, no, no, dude. That's not how that works. Just because he can kill us for not giving him the thing he wants doesn't mean we have to give him the thing he wants. Um, anyway. Mm. Uh <laughs> but yeah, and so there's this sort of series of we hear that Cominius got sent to talk mm-hmm. to him and got sent back. We see Meninius get mm-hmm. sent to talk to him and get sent back. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't like Mininius. He's such an asshole. He starts the play as like the main guy who's being a dick to the people. And so he's such after, a sass attack character though. Yeah. He's really fun. But I take great pleasure in sort of after he's been kind of dismissed by Coriolanus and like Vulcan servants who he was being rude to were like, oh, oh yeah, you're as important as you say. You're so right. That went really well. It's very funny. <laughs> um, and he gets sent back. And so finally in a sort of last ditch panic, they send Volumnia, Virgilia, and for some reason their friend Valeria, who has no lines. Um, she's and there also too, the and also the and son. the son, uh, young Martius. I guess we just needed three women for visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and a baby. And a baby. And He's a, a, youth, a, baby, a child. He's a child. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's. I mean, speaking of Coriolanus being married now, yeah, it's sort of the battle of the wives, except for, mm-hmm. of course, Virgilia barely speaks and does all the talking. Yep. And it works, I guess we should say, because we already alluded to it before. This is what I meant at the beginning when it was like, she kind of saves Rome. This is the thing that tips the scales. And I think this is the kind of question I have about Act 5, not to kind of mm. jump ahead, yeah. but also we've been talking for ages, um, is what in this kind of structure we've been setting up where it's like the thing that matters is the homosocial world. The thing that matters is his relationship with other soldiers and other men. He rejects all the other soldiers. He even, by giving into Volumnia, rejects Ophidius. Like, why is it that the women are the thing that persuades him? Or is that the problem? Is the problem that at the 11th hour, he is, in fact, false to himself? Yes. And for the first time, gives into something he doesn't really want or believe. Yes, I think that's great. It's a really complicated act. And I'm glad you framed it that way in terms of, like, the 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 state of question of his identity at this point because there's a piece of language really early on I don't remember if this is uh Cominius or Meninius after they come back and they're talking about how Coriolanus like was an asshole and wouldn't speak to them mm-hmm. but um one of them says to whoever he's talking to in Rome Coriolanus he would not answer to forbade all names he was a kind of nothing titleless till he had forged himself a name of the fire of burning Rome I think that's Meninius or Cominius who says that. And then yeah. this is a line that I pulled that Coriolanus says later is, I'll never be such a gosling to obey instinct, but stand as if a man were author of himself and knew no other kin. Yes. And so this thing of like, I'm not the me that you knew. I'm a different me. I'm the author of myself. But also like, but who is that? But who is that? Well, and also, so in the, I know that this is in the Meninius breakup when he shows up, what, part of what Coriolanus says to him because Meninius invokes the names of his wife, his mother, Mm -hmm. you know, before they actually show up. And Coriolanus says, wife, mother, child, I know not. My affairs are servanted to others, though I owe my revenge properly. My remission lies in Volscian breasts. Which is incredibly explicit. I have traded my family for my new family, the guy I'm married to and his dudes. Yeah. But I think it's so interesting you highlighted this. And I know I pulled that line, but I didn't think of it quite. Is that there is this sort of, it's like I've effaced my old identity, but I don't Mm -hmm. have a new one yet. Nope. And I think that that's maybe where 
Aufidius's kind of, or like is connected to Aufidius's sort of like impatience with and over the course of the act, mounting willingness to kind of betray Coriolanus mm-hmm. comes from is the yeah. sense that it's like this marriage hasn't quite slotted together and given him the sense of identity he wants and needs. No, no, it's really interesting. It's like the sequence in which the women arrive, there's a bunch of sort of ritual feeling kneeling. And it reminded me of two noble kinsmen. It reminded me of the Mm -hmm. kneeling queens and the way that everybody kneels for pardon. I think that's why we had to have three. Yeah, you got to do it. But well, and it's funny because also uh, Meninius does it as well, which yeah. reminded, you know, of, it's the this this tug of war over Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. And in the end, I mean, they sort of win by guilting the fuck out of him relentlessly his mother yeah, which kind of says to me I mean, maybe this connects as well back to what we're saying before not to get too kind of psychological about it. But it's like, yeah, maybe doesn't hate Rome as much as he's always said and believed. Right. Maybe he was fighting for something more than just his own glory and his Mm. own kind of passion for that adrenaline and intimacy. Mm -hmm. And at least like whatever they are to him, they are at least people who who have a real claim on him. The presence of the child, I feel like is pretty, yeah. is pretty weighty. And I, I don't know, it feels, but it does feel like a, a relenting, it doesn't, it's not a relief to him. Like he's not happy when he goes. No, it and feels he feels kind of, like a, like a, like a betrayal of self. It does to me. Yeah, and, but, and yet he kind of maintains this hope that he can persuade Ophidius that this is okay. Yeah. Yeah. And like that's what's really interesting is like on the one hand in the scene he's sort of like shit like this you've you've ruined me he kind of says like yeah. I'm giving in but this is bad this is bad mm-hmm. but when he comes into the final scene he's sort of like don't worry guys I made a really profitable piece with Rome isn't that just what we wanted and maybe it's that he's finally learned to talk like a politician yeah yeah, and then the person that's left in the dust and betrayed is Aufidius. And he mm-hmm. has a sort of miraculous hurt feeling speech. I have part of it here, which is yeah. so like realistic feeling. I don't know. So his kind of summary of the of the thing is Aufidius says, he came unto my hearth, presented to my knife his throat. I took him, made him joint servant with me, gave him way in all his own desires. Nay, let him choose out of my files his projects to accomplish. My best and freshest men served his designments in mine own person. Hope to reap the fame which he did end all, all his and took some pride to do myself this wrong till at the last I seemed his follower, not partner. And he mm-hmm. waged me with his countenance as if I had been mercenary. Yeah. I mean, wow. Yeah. I thought we were partners. But he just wanted to use me. You didn't actually leave your wife for me. Yeah. Like, actually, it's such a spurned lover speech. Yeah. And it, but again, it's like, it doesn't feel like the arc here is. And then in the end, Coriolanus learns to be straight and gives in to his wife properly. It's like, No. no, that gets him killed. It gets him killed immediately. Yeah. And I think even before he dies, the sense of this, the sense of having been wrongfully split in two. Yeah. Well, in the sense of, again, like we're saying, 
he's groping for a new identity. And in that moment, it's sort of like, okay, maybe it's this. Yeah. Maybe I am a Roman. Maybe I am. And maybe I am, by virtue of the people I'm looking at in front of me, a son, a husband, a father. Yeah. I'm someone who will put my wife and my heterosexually uh-huh. created child yeah. above war. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so of course, what happens is he goes back, Ophidius and his dudes invade anyway. And in the kind of clash of that, naturally, they come face to face and have a kind of cataclysmic no, scene, don't they? Not, or they, no. have a con- they have a conversation. Comes, yeah, no. Point. So it's that he he gives in to Volumnia. And um, so Alphidius is there during this whole conversation, kind of at the end right. of it. He's like, wasn't that moving? And Alphidius is like, yes, I guess I was kind, kind of. of. Yeah. Um, and so then Coriolanus you know, Alphidius has that speech. Coriolanus kind of goes back to Rome and makes a peace and sort of comes back to the Volscians who in the interim, they've plotted to kill him. Right, And right, sort of presents, yes. like like I said, this sort of like, yay, I made a really profitable peace. Isn't that better than war? And it kind of in front of the Senate, Alphidius has him killed. Yeah. And yeah. then instantly they does the- some words in that, yeah, but in that moment. Not a ton. And then in the classic Shakespeare fashion, Ophidius is still like, oh my God, he was the best. I feel really bad about this. It's insane. It's insane. So a few things about the end here. So um, yeah, there's just like, so the chunk I pulled from the words they do exchange at the very end yeah. is that Cor- Coriolanus says to Ophidius, measureless liar, thou hast made my heart too great for what contains it boy, oh slave, pardon me, lords, tis the first time that ever I was forced to scold. Your judgments, my grave lords, must give this cur the lie on his own notion, who wears my stripes impressed upon him, that must bear my beating to his grave, shall join thrust the lie upon him. And then when it's clear that he's about to be like ripped to pieces by all of the Volshies, he says- And the lie, the lie he's referring to is that Alphidius has accused him of treason in front of him. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And then when he's being like surrounded by soldiers and is about to die, this is just a gnarly, I mean, like what you said before about the the necessary eroticism of battle. The last thing he says to them is cut me to pieces, Volshi's men and lads, stain all your edges on me. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> and I don't know, because it's a group kill as well, and it isn't yeah. Ophidius who does it by himself. This is what I was thinking about earlier in terms of like his unwillingness to give the people his body in the Senate. But in the end, a different group of people have his body at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Like he and and that's actually what I was thinking as well, is like this scene is a mirror of the kind of yeah. banishment scene. And yeah, like, he's brought before the Senate. He's accused of this thing he says he didn't do. He gives this angry speech, but yeah. This time in the end, he's killed, not banished. Mm-hmm. But in, and, in a way, he would rather die than be humiliated. Yeah. He'd rather yeah. be killed. And it's interesting because some of the Volscian senators are sort of like, whoa, why'd you do that? <laughs> and like, then you're, you, like yeah. you said, Phidias's heart is kind of broken. Like one of, you know, he ends the play by saying, my rage is gone and I am struck with sorrow. Take him up. Help three of the chiefest soldiers. I'll be one. Yeah. Very kind of Polonius and Hamlet, like, again, the end of Julius Caesar, Mark Antony and Brutus, like, oh, now that he's dead, I can respect him again. Yeah. And, but also like the weird remorse of having killed the person that most understands you. I don't know. I mean, it's like a tiny flavor of Helen Hotspur there too. And 
but it's interesting just this thread we've been building of like it does kind of feel again in sort of very naturalistic psychological terms like Coriolanus never finds himself no no I think you're totally right about that because in a way what he arrives at in the end and doesn't have adequate time or tools to solve is he sort of discovers his own vacancy yeah yeah and and then doesn't have time to fill it with anything yeah because he already sort of gave away the part of himself that was a roman yeah. And because like part of the deal at the end, like that he makes is not that he'll go back to Rome. It's like he's sort of fucked in that respect. It's just like, yeah, we've made a peace and we won't kill you. Yeah. He doesn't get to go back. And now he's given away the part of himself that was the sort of partner of Alphidius. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so well, what's then you left? have no other self and what's you might there? as well be sort of devoured by the people. It reminds me a little bit. And I don't know why this is a weird reference, but did you ever see the book or read or uh, see the book? Did you ever read the book or see the film Perfume? Um, I saw the film, I think with you in college. Probably. Um, it's a really strange uh, German novel about a serial killer obsessed with perfume um but in the end um in the end the the main character gets literally devoured by a mob of people because he's poured the world's most delicious perfume all over his body and the mob eats him in a sort of ecstatic erotic frenzy and the last line of the book is um they had finally done something out of love Mm. and there is somehow the like sort of tableau of it and I don't know if this has any like if this would come into how I would stage it or how it would feel if I were to ever do it. But there's a sense of it being like a consumption by the people almost. Yeah. That, you know, like, I don't know, something about the sort of group feeding, the sort of group frenzy of it. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, it maybe does connect back to like the thing that you said before of like his reticence to give his body. Yeah. And in the end, it's sort of all he has left to give, like his That's sense right. of self turned out to be like this pride and this glory and this like yeah it was not it was built on nothing actually in the end yeah 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 and he doesn't really know who he is and then yeah if all you have left is your like amazing amazing sort of soldierly body and then this is the end of the road like annihilated in the most spectacular kind of operatic way possible yeah it's a weird I mean it's I think it's a play where it's like I both understand why it comes into vogue every once in a while and then why it quickly kind of falls back out again because it's so compelling in so many ways. But I think because it ends with the hero feeling this sort of vacant selflessness, not in the sense of being selfless, but in the sense of having no self, the ending feels really kind of odd and unsatisfying and again it's not even like the Howlin' Hotspur it's not the ending that you began to describe which is what you want which is where Ophidius and Coriolanus have this like one-on-one confrontation it's just like yeah it just kind of like ends and you're just sort of like okay yeah and there's no it's not um it's epic without being satisfying yeah. or I think I think that it could feel dramatically satisfying if you start with the ending and work backward and figure out how to make it a play about a man who has no self that's really interesting then, then the most satisfying then the, the climax dramaturgically would be Coriolanus realizing he has no self yeah and then and- after that you can just obliterate yeah which I think, yeah, is I guess what's hard about it is because in some ways that happens in the scene with Volumnia. 
And yes. then we have another like half an act to go. Right. Um, right. Yeah, I right. mean, that's what Simon Godwin did in his production of Antony and Cleopatra at the National mm-hmm. Theater in 2019, mm-hmm. 18, 19, I can't remember, mm-hmm. um, began with the sort of ending tableau and a sort of oh, right. the implicit question. They put some lines from later on kind of there and I can't remember exactly what they were, but it was sort of the like, how did this happen? How did Antony come to this? And mm-hmm. framing the whole very dramaturgically messy and scattered play like around that question and yeah I have mixed feelings about how successfully it like saw through that frame it set up but yeah it feels like the same impulse of like when it's like the how did we get here our our Aristotelian sensibilities are kind of not Mm -hmm. appropriately soothed by the shape of this play no, and I think it's interesting. I'm I'm not averse to that. I'm excited when Shakespeare is doing something that feels a tiny bit more sort of like postmodern. But and I don't mean I wouldn't frame it. I wouldn't frame it in a in a literal way. But I think in thinking about the play, I would have to start with the end and figure out mm. how you can be telling a story that ends there the whole time. Yeah. Ra- rather than just sort of arriving and being like, oh my God, I have no self. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm being killed, you know? Oh no. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, yeah. you can just center the whole play around the fact that Coriolanus is gay. No matter what else you do or how else you feel about him. Coriolanus. One thing about Coriolanus, he's gay. <laughs> and I think that's beautiful. Um, <laughs> It's not lost on me that we took a break during Pride Month, um, though technically here in the UK, July is Pride Month, so, oh, so we're still go. okay. Or at yeah. least we do London Pride in July. So we're doing just, we're then we're that's fine. We're doing UK Pride, not yeah, US. Pride. I know, but it, it it was it did occur to me that we had done that by accident, but that's okay. Uh, um, listen, so you know, <laughs> we tried. I had, we, I had a contract when I had a contract. Exactly. <laughs> um, so now here at the end of the episode is when we live and in person um, choose which play we are going to do next. And I think a couple of interesting possibilities have come up, though none helpful in our quest to continue to have listeners. <laughs> Listen, I think that against all odds, Coriolanus is sort of a banger, at least in terms of gayness. So, you yeah. know, I think we can stray into the weeds a little bit. I mean, I have a thought. What are yours? Well, I think that my thinking is we can go all Rome all the time and go straight into Julius Caesar, which we referenced. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Henry V could be really interesting as the kind oh. of other big war play um, oh. that we've left. Um, and uh, yeah, I think those are the two. Those are the two that are sort of top of mind for me. What were you thinking? Well, I mean, because it was the play we most repeatedly referenced, John. I, was that most repeatedly? Yeah, yeah, like four times. Oh, well, yeah, we could do that. Um, well, Caesar, it would be interesting to stay in Rome. It's also pretty gay. It's a great play. It's a great play. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do Caesar. And then we'll go into something weird. So okay. join us in a few weeks' time to read Julius Caesar every two weeks' time. Um, until then, you can find us on Instagram. Yes, you can. At this Shakespeare is gay. We're on Twitter at this shakes is gay at S-H-A-X. We'll see you soon. Goodbye.